Learning scripture, knowing Christ. Welcome to the Hashtag One Fear podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Hashtag One Fear podcast. Today, in the upper room, we got myself and Benj. And right when I hit the record button, I needed to sneeze. <laughs> so I was like, I know. Well, you handled it yeah, like a professional. I did. Squeeze my nose. That's how professional. Very professional. Yeah. That nose squeeze <laughs> my extremely eyes, professional. My eyes are watering. Consummate professionals we are here. <laughs> uh, so today we're, uh, we're figuring out what, what do we want to talk about? So I started studying uh, the book of Judges uh, during our break that we were doing like over Christmas, New Year's and all. And I thought it'd be pretty interesting to see and hear what Benj has to say about judges because he's a lot better with the Old Testament than me. So um, it, there, so far I've, I've studied up through chapter five. Um, and, and jokingly, I was like, you want to talk about poetry? And poetry. like, wait a minute, why poetry. don't we? Because it does show up, poetry. This poetry <laughs> does show up. In the book of Judges, and uh, mm-hmm. a song uh, from Deborah. Uh, but I figure, why don't we just do a a, a walkthrough? Because I haven't done one of those in a while. I can't even remember the last one I did, uh, doing a walkthrough of a book of the Bible. So we're going to do a walkthrough of the book of Judges, and it's probably going to be a two-part because there's so much in Judges that we could break apart and, and discuss and uh, see what kind of things come up that are uh, that you know maybe it's questionable as to how things play out and uh and judges is not really one of those books that it's like oh yeah that's easily simply uh applied to the christian life it's so it's so easy to and uh it's definitely not one of those <laughs> yeah judges is definitely one of the i'd say it's a you know the one of the juicier books to read <laughs> yes. right you know it's got um you know uh, I always remember Calvin and Hobbes. Remember when Calvin uh, buys that album by the the band uh, Scrambled yeah. Debutante, and uh, he says that all their songs glorify depraved violence, mindless sex, and the deliberate abuse of dangerous drugs. And uh, Hobbes says, "So your mom's going to go into conniptions when she sees this lying around." And then he Calvin's throwing away the record, and he says, "Well, I sure didn't buy it for the music." <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you know, this yeah. is not, uh, I say we don't have the deliberate abuse of dangerous drugs, but, um, there's some pretty, uh, pretty, you know, bad stuff in judges. Yeah. And I think then the struggle as Christian readers of the scripture is to move beyond an interpretation that is just, oh, what's the, what's the lesson here? Or what's a moral example? Which character should we be like and not be like? That's a, that's one dimension of our interpretation. Yeah. But there are many ways in which the characters and the stories are, first of all, pointing us ahead as, as types and shadows of the one who was to come, um, Jesus Christ. And then yeah. also just sometimes the story, the story just needs to move along because in God's redemptive plan, he brings the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and brings them to the land but uh, they haven't gotten to the the monarchy at the establishment of of God's um, chosen king, and so that's mm-hmm. another kind of thing in the background of Judges is um, that there's no king, right? There's no king, and so it's and, kind of written yet, from the perspective of a time when there was a king, right? Yeah. So there's a reflection back on what was it like before we had kings, and specifically kings from Judah, right? Not kings from Benjamin. Benjamin is it's definitely yeah. a very uh, negative portrait of of the of people from Benjamin. So yeah. so David and, and Saul conflict is kind of in the background yeah. as and well. And it and it seems like uh, you know as, if the cat's not around, the mice come out to play. You know, yeah. Since there is no king, what did everybody do? What Whatever was right they, in their own yeah, eyes, everything that was right in their own eyes. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, you made mention of like, you know, there's a lack of, of drugs or whatever. And <laughs> I, I, some pretty cool visions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. There was, I guess there's a, it's not really a vision. Uh, there's an angel and yeah, Gideon yeah. has some dreams, you know, I was, I was actually going to throw out there that there still is some intoxicating, uh, oh, yeah. events that happen. That's though. true. Uh, two yeah. that, two that I picked up on one, one might be questionable, uh, two might be more 
uh, you have to think of it on the more creative side. Okay. <laughs> so, All right. Well, let's get to this. So, so we got. Yeah, I'll see what you have to say drugs, about that when we get there. And, uh, and sex <laughs> in judges. So yeah, and rock and roll. If you want to throw in Deborah's song. Oh, you know? there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. So without any further ado, here's our walkthrough of the book of Judges. So here we go. All right, so the first thing that I think we should do is look at the introduction and how, especially because it's the introduction, it's the beginning, and how it might correlate with the ending because Judges is structured in a way that it's it's more split up into three sections. Uh, the first being the introduction, which has a double introduction, uh, the middle of the Judges, and then the the third part is the double ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the intro has double and the ending has a double. And it's kind of like these bookends. How uh, they they kind of reinforce each other. Kind of saying like, this is what's going on. You get to the end. It's like, see, this is what's going on. Yeah. 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 And uh, so by the double introduction, um, where I assume you mean chapter one, verse one, through up through chapter two, verse five. And then it kind of reintroduces, goes back to Joshua once again. So yeah. it's like yeah. the, after the death of Joshua, but then Joshua was reintroduced. Yeah. And I think that goes to three, three, six, six. Yeah. Yeah. So two, six to three, six. And then you have um, the the remainder of chapter three is a short story about the, the a, job for, a judge from the tribe of Judah. And then a long story about a judge from the tribe of Benjamin. And so this dynamic of the relationship or the sort of maybe the rivalry between Judah and Benjamin or comparison between Judah and Benjamin is a feature of chapter three. And then as we will see in the conclusion or part of the conclusion of the book, chapters 19 to 21 is the atrocity, uh, the outrage at Gibeah. And then Judah is the tribe that's leading the rest of all Israel against um, Benjamin in the civil war. But we'll we'll get there in good yeah. time. And then and in the middle, you have these uh, this core of four, chapters four to sixteen stories about judges from other tribes besides Judah and Benjamin. And then seventeen and eighteen is this um, the, mig- the story of the Danite migration, which we can which we'll yeah. talk about next time. Yeah, I I wanted to point out because you said two things that uh, made me remember something. Uh, the first thing was that when you said like the one story was longer than the other, the worse the judge, the longer the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Simple is better. Yeah. yeah. No, no <laughs> news is good news. Yeah. Right? Pretty much. Yeah. 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 And uh, the second thing, oh, of course it slipped my mind. Oh my gosh. What was I going to say? I hate that. Shorter is better. Uh, comparison between Judah and Benjamin. Oh, uh, that the... Judges, it, it, from what I remember, each judge was from a different tribe. Yeah, I think there are. Let's see, because because uh, oh. I remember that when people when scholars try to date judges and like when it happened, a lot of people argued there's not enough time for the end of Joshua and when the first monarch starts. There's there's too much that happens, so there's like this discrepancy. But the thing is, some of these judges overlapped. Because right, they were right. not all just in the the entire land. They were judging and and maybe even ruling from their perspective uh, tribes' land. Right. Right. So yeah, even if um there were some from from the same tribe or from the same region, they are serving kind of concurrently in different regions. So yeah. I think um by one tally in my notes here, I have there's over four hundred years or four hundred and ten years of total time. Yeah. mentioned in judges but that's everybody acknowledges that that's too long to get you from Joshua to the monarchy in at the beginning of Sam you know or the last judge Samuel to the beginning so that means that the judges are regional and are serving in overlap serving yeah. overlapping and we should say what a judge is a judge is not just someone in robes um, or with, their all, with their mallet, with their gavel, <laughs> right? Their gavel, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> with wigs, you know, for thinking British judges. Yeah. Right? Um, maybe they had wigs. I don't know. Curly I, ones. I don't yeah. know what Deborah had. You know, she might have had a, had a wig, but um, but a judge is not just someone who who gives rulings, but 
is a leader that, that, that judges what is right and fair in a situation and, and then applies, like has the strength to either the strength of character or even some cases, military strength to accomplish the judgment, to actually make, yeah. make happen what's supposed to happen. Um, in the case of Deborah, she called on someone else for that military right. uh, prowess. Too, right, but well. she was so well-respected yeah. that she was judging and her judgments were understood to be, yeah. be true. So the judges would, would contrast with, you know, and I would say this is a discussion further afield, but um, when we say, okay, did God intend for there to be kings in Israel? Um, you know, Samuel warns the people about what will happen when you have a king in First Samuel 8. You're going to have a state. The king is going to tax you. He's going to conscript. Um, but then you have a king described in Judges, sorry, in Deuteronomy uh, 17, that the king that's basically a first among equals, someone who leads people into battle, has to be from Israel. The king of Deuteronomy 17 is really more like the judge the judges that we see. But so then the question at the end of judges is, you know, how do we, is this a good situation and, or do we need something more centralized and more permanent rather than just ad hoc judges responding to crises? Yeah. So, so one of the themes that I picked up on so far um, in my more in-depth study uh, is God's sovereignty over everything. Because you got these judges that are just not 100% obedient. Uh, they, they need more signs. They need verification. They, they're just not taking God's word for God's word. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, go do, do this. Uh, well, I need, I need proof that what you say is going to happen is actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, just the, the lifestyles, too. In general, it's kind of, you know, the modern reader might bring into question, well, if God is a loving God and, you know, these people, these Christians are supposed to obey the Bible and all this other stuff, why, why is it that it's okay for these judges to be the ones in, in that position to judge? Because look at their character. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think it's a I think it's a faulty question to even ask because first of all, who is perfect? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um but second of all, uh we need to remember God's sovereignty in the entire narrative of human history mm-hmm. because he's not just going to you know, he's not going to just sit back and say, "Oh man, they messed up. I guess I'm just going to have to start over." Uh you know, he he almost did that with the flood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, he, he almost did it a couple times, you know, to, to the Israelites. And, you know, Moses steps in and says no. Uh, or, you know, all this stuff happens, but God's hand is still active in it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of stuff we might, we might gloss over by saying like, oh, you know, God this and God that. But God is allowing certain things or having his hand in it. And in the English, I, I and there's there's some parts in the English I feel like the the nuances and the power behind it is missing. Uh, for example, when uh, Deborah sends Barak out to find uh, Sisera, God, the language in English is like he came out from the uh, Sisera came out or was pulled out of the city to go, but the language is God. It's kind of like yanking him out. Hmm. You know, he pulled him. It wasn't just like a a taunt or anything like that, or just like led him to do that by this standard or that standard. It was, he was yanked out. And then the story unfolds, Cicero loses, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think that an interesting way to see this dynamic between God's God's hand and human error, of course, human, yeah. human sinfulness, is that you can see the way that God's plan moves forward continues to move forward. And he's using, I think it's through one way is through the use of women or how, how women are portrayed in this book. Obviously a lot of the main characters in the Bible are male. It's a kind of a male centered um, story overall. And yet women are very important in the book of judges, but it's kind of a, it's a litmus test in each episode. How, 
how the society is treating women, how women are portrayed, um, and and women are so women are almost exclusively in not not completely but almost exclusively in judges portrayed as either the ones who are who have it together when the men don't have it together, or they are um, uh, or or they're they're victims of what's yeah. of what's happening, and so as as a society is is unsuccessful at um following god's god's way um women women suffer so you have a situation where um you know in the story of deborah deborah is judging israel she comes off looking really really good barack comes off looking possibly less faithful um you know more more hesitant and so he doesn't get the glory of of killing sisera who gets the glory a woman who takes Jael, yeah. who takes matters into and her own hands. But what the irony too is that it wasn't even Deborah, it was right. Jael that he. So it's kind of like it was almost as if uh, Barak was like, "Well, that's what she prophesied." But look, I have this opportunity. I'm the only one going after Sisera, and I found him, uh, but he's still too late. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then you know later on in this in the narrative, you have you know. Samson's parents, whose names we don't know, but then the dad's like, we're all going to die. And the mom's like, <laughs> but if, if the angel was going to kill us, he wouldn't have just told us that we're going to have a baby. Yeah, like know? we're still oh, here. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, and then of course, yeah, the treatment of women is really a significant part of the last episode, um, 19 to 21, but. There's definitely a, a variety of characters. Yes. In the yes. book of Judges. Yep. Um, and I wish we could spend the time to go through every single character in, in the book of Judges because there is a lot of interesting things. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we quick uh, just make a quick uh, – I'll point out one thing from each chapter and you point out one thing. Okay. We'll do, see if we can All do right. a quick rundown. Yep. Where, um, where are we starting at? From well, chapter three? Or? Yeah, we're not okay. going to – no, cha- well, let's do – so I'll say one, one thing and you can either respond or you can – Okay. Okay, so chapter one um, – we uh, have this story of the um, the guy who, uh, well, no, I don't want to point that out. You see, um, Israel or Judah leads Israel up into battle against the Canaanites after Joshua's death, according to Yahweh's word, and that's the same thing that happens in the end of the book when Joshua uh, Judah is the one who's to lead up Israel against the Benjaminites. But notice the shift there that the 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 mission at the beginning of the book was to finish the conquest and destroy the Canaanites. Yeah. But by the end of the book, the Israelites are destroying each other. They're mm-hmm. in civil war. Yeah. yeah. And there's yeah, civil, that, civil so, wars throughout okay. the civil wars throughout the book, right? Okay. All right. Was that was that your one thing? That was my one thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh well in in tow with that, uh in verse two it says the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, Judah is supposed to go, but what does Judah do first? They ask for help. They ask for help. Right. Exactly. And from who? Not the Lord. They go to Ben. Yeah, they go to Benjamin. So from the get-go, they're still like, okay, we're going to trust in God, but only at 99%, yep. not 100%. Yep. Yeah. All right. Chapter two um, is you have this, like the tail end of the first introduction, you have the, the people's failure and that the nations will be of a thorn in their side. But then you have, I think, like a kind of a variety of explanations given that's hard to hard, hard to reconcile for why exactly the conquest wasn't finished. Um, because chapter two, verses one to five say it's the people's failure um, to obey. Um, at the end of the chapter, it says that Yahweh allowed the Canaanites to remain to test the people to see whether they would follow him. Oh man, that was the one I was going <laughs> to... And then, and then, well, then we can talk about it. And All then, right. and then the first two verses of chapter three say that Yahweh let the Canaanites remain to teach the next generation of Israelites how to go to war. Yeah. So which is it? Is the existence, is the persistence of the Canaanites the failure of the people or God testing them to see if they will fail or just training them to give them war? What, what do you think of that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, cause the, the above. yeah, cause I mean, Let's put it this way. You know, when you're playing baseball, you're using a bat to hit a ball, right? Mm -hmm. Does that mean you can't use a bat for anything else? No. I've once used a bat. Exploding fireflies. That's it. (laughs) I've I've once, uh, I once used a metal baseball 
that to nail something in in a fort when I was growing up. There you go. So, I mean, yeah, there's more than one use to certain things. I, I think, oh, wait, oh, that's a contradiction. That No, because like th- things are, when things happen, they could be explained many different ways. And if, like, for example, that philosophical uh, three blind men touching a, an elephant thing, um, when one touches the trunk, oh, it's a snake. One touches the the side and it's uh, something else. And I, I forget what it is, uh, what all of them touch, but they all have a different perspective because they're blind. They only see one part. Mm. If you put those all together, you see something about God that isn't just their teaching or they were just ju- that he was just judging or that he was strengthening strengthening them. You know, there's there's a collective whole that all these incidences happen explain exactly who God is more thoroughly. Well, and I think it's just part of the complexity, like you said, of of perspective and the complexity of human agency and God's divine plan. Because in our own lives, we can see, like, did that happen? Did God allow this to happen? Yeah. Yep. You know, if God brings something good out of something, a sin or a mistake that we make, but he's, he teaches us something through it, is, he, is God the author of sin? Well, no. Yeah. But did God allow it to happen so that we could experience um, yeah. something. It's, I, I it's think we can, both, both I think, yeah. And I think we can very easily create it for ourselves, a logical fallacy yes. <laughs> when we, when we approach it uh, more inappropriately, like remember the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. He's got this. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Chapter three. What's something interesting that you saw? It's uh Othniel. And Ehu, the Benjaminite judge. That's yeah. the one with the stabbing so, and the short sore and the lefty. So, and the one of the things that came up with the, with the stabbing, um, okay. <laughs> there, there's question whether or not that he presented himself for the king, uh, to that king for sexual deeds. Hmm. Yeah. That's... Because, like, why in this whole process did it occur that way? Why were the guards sent away? Why was he allowed in there without, like, che- like check on the king or anything? And then the fact that, well, maybe he's in the bathroom. Well, there's a reason why. They probably smelled what came out after the stabbing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, it's an interesting um, yeah, question about some, some sexual overtones or undertones, whatever, in, uh, in this story. Um, I think this is a really interesting one. And of course, being a left-handed Benjaminite, Benjamin means son of the right hand. You know, there's a yeah. delightful. Oh, there's iron, a lot of irony, play on words. Irony yeah. there. I've written an article about that. But um, there's, uh, I think what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting is that if you kind of consider the geography of when Ehud goes to bring tribute to the king, Eglon, and then he goes, he comes, he doubles back. It seems like he goes out of his way to pass by the idols, oh, the, the yes. Pesalim at, yes. at Gilgal. And then when and so, he, so did he worship there? Was he is Ehud an idolater? Basically, is the yeah. question, or does he is he worshiping Yahweh with images? Um, so I I just think there's it, it's not necessarily very clear that Ehud is fully on the up and up, a really faithful and upright servant of Yahweh in every sense that we would want to see in terms of obeying the Ten Commandments and all this. And yet God still uses him as a judge yeah. to judge uh to judge the Moabite oppressors. Yeah. And I'll point out when he passes them twice, mm-hmm. did those gods stop him from killing that God's king? No. no. I mean well, <laughs> like well, in full display, this is what the this guy's going to do. You know, and and still, and well, I, I don't th- I don't know if the Gilgal Pesalim were the were Moabite um, images. I think that I think it was the Israelite images at Gilgal because they're worshiping Yahweh oh, okay. using images. So okay. I that assumed, could be one reason yeah. why they were I delivered it into was, the hands of the Moabites to begin with. Yeah, I assumed it was the Moabites. Yeah, the Moabites would be um, either yeah if it's if they're meeting him at the city of Palms, that's Jericho. Um, yeah. It's, it, the, I think it, the point is it's ambiguous whether, um, what, what, is the, what is the reason why this, the narrator points out that Ehud stops by the, 
the images and then and then goes back. But he clearly has in mind that he's going to deliver. Um, he, he's going to kill the king and escape. So, but it's a lot. Of, it's really fun. It's a really fun story. And the names. Some of the names of these are great. Like the king. Uh, yeah. The king that Othniel defeats is um, Kushan Rishathayim, which is like Kush, the doubly wicked, effeminate king. You know, yeah. like Rishathayim, yeah. and then Eglon, the king of Moab, is you know, rem, re, related to the word Egel, which is like a fattened calf. So of yeah. course he's a fat king who, you know, gets slaughtered in his yeah. chamber, whatever. So and the, and the play on words, cool. the play on words there is that when he's slaughtered, that same word is used for when they do a sacrifice, mm. you know? Yep. Uh, so the fattened calf was sacrificed unto the Lord, you, <laughs> you know? You uh, yeah. A lot of play on words. Yeah. All right, four and five, the the Deborah and Barak story, and then then the song of Deborah, the Gile and Sisera um, story at the end. Any what what sticks out for you from that story? So four is the is like the the narrative, and then five in that song, it's kind of recapping a lot of stuff that happens mm-hmm. up to this uh, the ending of chapter four, and. Uh, what what we can definitely miss out on is that the song <clears throat> the song fills in some of the details where usually it's the other way around it's like oh, what's the meaning of this song mm-hmm. give me the rest of the narrative you know but yeah. it's actually the other way around yeah it's one of these great examples in the in the bible where we have a, a prose narrative and a poem right next to each other another one would be exodus 14 and 15 that are back to back. But um, last night I sent you this um, reading from uh, Robert Alter and the the Art of Biblical Poetry, and it's a great book. Uh, I think you most accessible to most people if even if you don't have Hebrew because everything's in translation. But um, he's he he points out that um, there's some let's say like details that. Well, there's some slippage, let's say, between the prose <laughs> narrative and the poem. Yeah. Um, yep. So, for example, when when you read the conclusion of the song, um, I, why don't I just read this here? Because this is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, so this is chapter five, verses twenty-four to thirty-one. Um, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women. Most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, she, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window, she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And so the most, the most significant difference between the, the prose story is that, and, and the poem is that in the prose story, she kind of rolls him up in a carpet or a blanket and he's lying there asleep when she sneaks up on him and stabs him or hammers the tent peg into his head. Whereas when you read the poem, it almost it's almost like you're watching like a slow motion like it, you know an anime when they like yeah. show the same thing like yeah. in slow mo couple frames at a time three times in a row the fact that it says like he sank he fell he lay still between her feet he sank he fell where he sank there he fell yeah so so there's a different picture of a man being struck and his knees buckling and him tumbling down to the ground now that's not that's not a contradiction i mean if it if in terms of it's it's a detail that if we're taking this poem in a literalistic fashion then it's a difference and yet what it's conveying is something of the 
um, the symbolism or the the impact of this the victory of this woman over this powerful general. And and one of the things that Alter points out is the the sort of the sexual overtones of this story where in the prose story he comes into the tent and she invites him in, which would have been a a scandalous kind of very dangerous thing for her to do to just be alone in a tent and invite uh, a guy in. Um and then she puts him down to bed. Um, and then, inst- and and remi- reminding us that in in this context of battle, um, women would be sexually assaulted, right? And at the end of this poem, a womb or two for every man, right? The Cicero's mother and her um, ladies in waiting, speculating that he's going to take sexual slaves as captives. So then it reverses this imagery where instead of uh, the man assaulting Jael, she pierces his head with this tent peg. And instead of him um, forcing himself on her, she, he tumbles down dead between her feet. So it's a, in, in both the prose story and in the poem, there's a powerful, vivid reversal of what you would expect to happen in this situation. And, and so there's not really, if we get, literal on the details then there is a there are there is some slippage there but the the sense of it overall is very very much similar yeah that's what i was gonna say (laughs) (laughs) sorry to get on my little uh, yeah i i will add too that you know this is uh a tent dwelling people tribe and Mm -hmm. uh they they uh by god's providence they just happen to set up their tents in this area and uh i think two times i came across that you know because that's the type of wanderers that they are it's usually the women's job to get the tents set up mm-hmm. so she's pretty good with the hammer and, and nail yeah yeah so would you say that the ending of this story is intense nah uh, 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 you, all right you pegged it uh, <laughs> um you know just as an aside one of the best sermons i've ever heard um was like literally one of the best sermons i've ever heard on the old testament was in singapore when we went to we just visited an anglican church for the evening service and one of the deacons preached about this story and she pointed out that the um that the she just drew this connection to the god using a woman's hand and a hammer and a nail to deliver his people and then jesus delivered his people with mm. the nails you yeah. know in, in his hands but d- differently obviously anyway yeah she was much more eloquent <laughs> than i just presented it but it w- it just hit me really hard right there at the end very good yeah not not literally not, me, yeah but, rhetorically (laughs) all right chapter six my kids just got loud (laughs) six through eight gideon and uh well so so six and seven is gideon's victory and then gideon kind of goes off the rails in chapter eight but what do you want to start with what's what's one interesting thing that sticks Uh, out to you from chapter six and seven i'm trying to find it uh just the fact that gideon from the get-go was hiding yeah uh in the was he in the wine press? Or yeah, where, I mean, he I was threshing the it. wheat at yes. night, right? Yeah, so that at they night wouldn't, and in the wine wine cellar or whatever they were it was. Pressed, right? Yeah. And then when he goes to tear down the altar of Baal, he he does it at night. So I mean, yeah. it's nice, but also, um, you know, uh, not not super courageous just yet. But God is kind of working with him along the way um, to show him that he doesn't need to be super um strong just just to be strong in faith and god will use other means to deliver his people right um i always wondered like when they when he was whittling down the army down to 300 like Mm. who actually like goes and sticks their face down in a stream do you do that I would have just I, like used my hand. I hope that I don't have to do <laughs> any drinking from a stream <laughs> to begin with. Uh, but yeah, I, 
Honestly, I'd maybe I'd look for somewhere where it's like falling before I stick my head to the ground. Yeah, yeah. And then cup it. If I can't do that, then I would cup it, yeah. yeah. But then chapter eight, so I mean, the story of Gideon's pretty familiar and it's, um, you know, but then like we were saying, the flawed nature of these characters comes to the fore and um, Gideon, uh kind of gets stuck into this conflict between because he's from uh, Manasseh and then the men of Ephraim are like, why didn't you call us when we fought, when you fought Midian? (laughs) And so then he has to, you know, there's, he basically goes and pursues um, Ziba and Zalmunna and, and then, and comes back and I don't want to say like terrorizes, but he, um, exacts some revenge uh, um on the other israelites because because they um attacked his honor they undermined his honor um so that's pretty um pretty harsh and then at the end the end of the story they say the people this is uh judges 8:22 the men of israel said to gideon rule over us you and your son and grandson for you have saved us from the hand of midian and Gideon's like, no, I'm not going to be king over you. The Lord will rule over you. But then what does he do? He's like, give me some spoils. And he makes an ephod out of it. And then he has this fancy ephod or, you know, like a fancy yeah, like royal a vest, vest yeah. kind of thing that he wears. And the people, um, it says it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So they somehow seem to worship it. And what does he name his son? He names his, uh, his son by his concubine, uh, Abimelech, which means my father is king. So he's not going to accept the responsibility of being a king, but he's going to accept all of the, the money, the respect. And then, um, he has, he has a, he had many wives and a concubine in a different city. And it's the son of his concubine that, that goes off further off the rails in chapter nine, uh, Abimelech. So, um, so the ending of Gideon's life is not a very, not a very, um, happy one in terms of the the way his his lasting impact on the israelite society yeah verse 35 of uh, chapter 8 they also failed to show any loyalty to the family of jerobel that is gideon in spite of all the good things he had done for them yeah that seems seems like a cope to me (laughs) (laughs) now i mean he did do good things for israel um but he also sowed the seeds of uh of their their own demise their own demise yeah, yeah. um so chapter nine you have abimelech who's like the anti-judge and he's not a judge he's he kind of um tries to become tries to become king um uh, and becomes a tyrant but eventually gets killed by whom by a woman because he's attacking yeah. the um the city of uh, yeah, the Tebes. Mill, that's when the, the millstone was a millstone yeah. on his head. Yeah, yeah. I was going to point out um, he's very convincing. Abimelech in uh, verse one, Abimelech, son of Jerobel, uh, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, "Ask all the citizens of Shechem which is better for you to have all seventy of Jerobel's sons rule over you, or just one." Yeah, they have one <laughs> one tyrant. So, so then, what does that tell you about how the the seventy sons of uh, of Jeroboam of of uh, Gideon are are living? You know, they're. It's not like oh, having many leaders means that they're yeah, that it's, it's good influence yeah. uh, leavened into the society. It's like these guys are rich and dissipated and probably drunk and like following their fa- in their father's late footsteps. Yeah. And then he and, says, remember, I'm your flesh and blood. Yeah. <laughs> Guilt tripping him. <laughs> so then it says he went out, they went out and um, he went out and killed all his, all his brothers, except for one, right? Um, so, um, yeah. So, so, the, the, so chapter nine, I think, has to be seen as a continuation of the story of, yeah. of Gideon. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, we're, do you have anything else or are we going to 10? No, go. What, right. What's up online? Uh, so Tola and JR. Oh yeah. Okay. 10. Uh, and, uh, do wait, what? No, go ahead. Okay. I, no, I thought, sorry. I'm, 
Did I miss a couple, couple of minor judges yeah. here at the beginning? So of these, this is the second and third one, right? We skipped over the first one, if, I, if memory serves. My, me right. Oh, there's one at the tail end of chapter three. Yeah, I think three or four or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. the end of three. Yeah, end of yeah. three because uh, Deborah's Shamgar. Four. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, he is not Israelite, from what I remember. Yeah, it's uh, he seems to be yeah uh, not a. Yeah, it, there's, it's a little bit ambiguous, a lot yeah. of these names, but um, it doesn't seem like it's a Semitic name. So. Yeah, but Tola, after the time of Abimelech, a man of Ish, Ishkar, mm-hmm. uh, named Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Not the same kind of Dodo. Extinct. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he died um, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, rose to save Israel. He lived in... I can't see. Shamir. Shamir. Uh, in the hill country of Ephraim, he led Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. Mm-hmm. And then verse three, he was followed by Jer uh, of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. What if it said 31 donkeys? I'd have some questions. But anyway. Um, <laughs> One of them was a little hefty. <laughs> he had to sit on two donkeys. They... They controlled 30 towns in Gilead. So we're back to uh, before Abimelech was like, hey, would you rather have one or 70? Mm-hmm. Uh, these sons, they're, they're allotted all these areas. And uh, just a note, Gilead is in the Transjordan. So it's on the east side of the Jordan. So remember, there's two and a half tribes that are on the east side. And that's going to be important when we get to uh, Jephthah uh, in chapter 11, because Jephthah is a Gileadite. Yeah. And then uh, they controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Haveth Jair. When Jair died, he was buried in Cayman. So there's a lot of... Uh, okay, so this judge, is that's what they did. Very... Yeah, not much lit, detail here. Not, not at all. So we can maybe safely assume that there were better judges because <laughs> there's less narrative. Yeah, no it. news is good yeah. news, right? Yeah. Uh, so then that brings us to... Uh, Jephthah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the Ammonites are the the enemy at this at this time. They're handed over. So the Philist just geographically, right? The Philistines are to the southwest of of Israel, and they're going to be the main foil or the main enemy in the in chapters thirteen to sixteen because. Dan is in the southwest to start out with, and as is Judah. But then here in chapters 11 and 12, on the other side of the Jordan, you've got the Ammonites, right? So they are, um, these are the distant cousins of, of Israel through Lot. So they're not Canaanites, but they are the enemies of, um, of Israel. And so when, when we see Jephthah the Gileadite, um, who is the son of a of Gilead and a prostitute? He's rejected by his brothers, but then grows up and ki- kind of has this. Little, he becomes kind of like a gangster or like a yeah a leader of a he has, he's kind of a mob. Yeah, yeah. Well, probably more like a mountains and woods thug. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, worthless fellows collected around him. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, but they needed him to lead them uh, against the Ammonites because he had the strongest military around. It's interesting that when he tries to kind of make peace before going out to the Ammonites. Um, the Ammonites, he, Jephthah knows his history, at least the way he's portrayed. He knows that the Israelites came up from Egypt and didn't touch the Ammonites' land per God's instructions. And this is Deuteronomy chapter two and chapter three. So even though Jephthah is, you know, he makes some mistakes, um, you know, uh, one tragic mistake at the end, he seems like. He's saying, "Hey, you know, why why you got to be like this, guys? You know, we we didn't to, to the Ammonites. He's trying to say, like, hey, God, our God gave us this land. Will you not? This is eleven twenty four. Will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? Um, now, all that Yahweh our God has dispossessed before us, we will we will possess. So he's saying we're entitled to this land, and he's ready to to defend it um, and defend his people, even though war is coming." Um, so then sadly, you know, he makes this vow that whatever comes out to meet him when he, um, returns uh, when he returns, yeah. um, will, 
uh, will be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Of course, it turns out to be his only daughter. Yeah. Um, Which and that there's a brings, lot of questions. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It brings in a lot of questions. Was she actually sacrificed, mm-hmm. or did she just live the celibate life? Right, you right. Know, because it, cause the language is like she she mourned her virginity. Right, not yeah. mourned my life. You know, yeah. that's what you know, that's the puzzling piece. I think how I think so far up to this point, I don't think it was just her mourning her virginity. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I really do think that he fulfilled his vow. I, just the flow of how judges goes, but I mean still the question is up in the air. Yeah. The 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 uh the targum so Jewish and Christian interpreters were split on this question, but the Targum uh, makes it really clear that it says, you know, he did he did to her according to his vow. He offered her as a whole burnt offering before the Lord, and he didn't consult Phineas the priest. And if he had consulted him, he would have redeemed her with with blood. So there is a provision in the law that allows you to to make to 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 um, to abrogate or to not fulfill a, a vow that would yeah. require you to do something sinful. Um, and so you would think that if he had consulted, if there had been, if he had been aware of the law, then he would have found some other way other than human sacrifice to fulfill his vow. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting then just c- to compare his, what we know of his home life at Mizpah, you know, his father, Gilead has many sons and Jephthah is himself the son of a prostitute before him. Gideon has 70 sons by different wives and then also a concubine. We don't know about Jephthah's home life, but he only has one daughter. So that's, and, and then it means that he doesn't, maybe he broke the cycle of what his, um, you know, how his uh, predecessors, his predecessors, yeah. including yeah. his father had lived. Maybe he was not that fertile. Um, maybe he maybe, was a family guy. Maybe he was a family yeah. guy. Yeah. We don't know. Um, but in the point is he didn't succeed in establishing uh, a, a, a dynasty, right? None of these leaders, yeah. does their leadership survive them? And, and since this book uh, drips with irony, mm-hmm. um, the, the, let me see. Yeah, the last verse in chapter 12, uh, verse 15, then Abaddon, son of Hillel, died and was buried in Parathon in Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. So when someone is buried in a certain area, that's like, it's basically signing a contract. This is our land and it goes to mm-hmm. our descendants. Uh, but, you know, what but the Amalekites are still there. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, yeah, their, their descendants are, you know, they, they haven't, they clearly have not gone in and actually established the possession of the land from the Canaanites, nor have they done the, um, they established their dynasty. Has anyone uh, has anyone established really a, a, a dynasty of leadership? Um, but uh, just to finish off with chapter twelve, you've got this: the men of Ephraim, who are again on the western side of the Jordan, are unhappy that Jephthah didn't call them to fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah's like, "Well, you know, I, I called you, and you didn't save me. Um, and so, um, why why are you coming now?" and so Ephraim goes over and fights. So we have a civil war once again within. Yeah. I read the wrong Judah. verse. My bad. Okay. Yeah. That's right. why I was confused. I meant Jephthah in ver- okay. verse seven, because uh, I read the yeah. Abaddon, which oh, is the yeah, three, the next three uh, minor judges. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. My bad. Verse seven, Jephthah led Israel six years and Jephthah the Gileadite uh, died and was buried in the town in Gilead. Yeah. Even well, I was confused about what I was saying. <laughs> no, that happens to me sometimes. Yeah. You're like, wait, I thought, wait, what? yeah, you know, I thought we were um, talking about Jephthah. Why am I reading Abaddon? Yeah. Oh, whatever. But you know, <laughs> Jephthah is not able to really. It says he judged Israel six years, and you know he delivers them. But then there's still this civil war that happens, um, and this hilarious, hilariously, and sounds you know, seemingly ridiculous story of. The Ephraimites trying to flee back over the Jordan, um, they'll say, "Are you?" The men of Gilead say, "Are you an Ephraimite?" And he's like, "No." Yeah, <laughs> and they say, "Well, say all right, then word. say Shibolet or Shibboleth, right?" And the Ephraimites would say Sibolet because they couldn't, they didn't pronounce it the same way. 
and um, I went, and so like I wonder how them. they did that. Like, did they have it written down or something? Because say I heard someone, <laughs> yeah, know, say like, this, just repeat it, <laughs> right, right, yeah, just say it back. <laughs> I uh, heard someone compare this to in World War II when you had the uh, these um, Nazi soldiers, you know, a German people of German descent who were raised in America and spoke like perfect English or, or in Britain. Yeah. Uh, but if they were American raised as Americans, they spoke perfect English, but had gone become part of the Nazi cause the way you would, if the Americans were encountering these um, Germans and wondered, can prove whether you're, whether you're German or not, or pr- prove that you're American because they're claiming to be American. Yeah, yeah. And they ask him, you know, what was, uh, what did Ted, what did Ted Williams bat in nine, in 1941? <laughs> and uh, if they didn't say, you know, 341, then, um, then they know they were fake, uh, fake Americans and actually Nazi spies. When I was, what, what if you were an American who just wasn't that into baseball? Then you'd be in Yeah. Trouble. What if you were into soccer? You know, I don't know. You know Americans weren't into soccer. No, not yet. No. Yeah. A few more years. They'll catch on. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the first half of, uh, of judges, we kind of did a little bit of a run through, but yeah, walk through part part one part of one, judges. Any overall reflections? Yeah, any far? takeaways? Um, I keep going back to the sovereignty of God, and I'll probably do that in the second part too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but nice. that, and just the fact that you know what, just because this is a biblical interpretations podcast, and you know a little bit of uh, apologetics here and there. How do we how do we come to terms with some of the content that's in judges? And uh, first things first, we got to know what we're reading, yeah. you know, because there's a lot of uh, like I said in the English, we're not going to pick up on it as well as if we knew uh, the Hebrew. Uh, that there's play on words, there's different nuances here and there. Uh, that you know, it, poetic <laughs> prose that we may not pick up on in the English. So we got to know a little better before we could make any arguments. Mm. We can't just go, oh, well, these people were wicked. Well, okay, yes, they were wicked, but where does God step in? Yeah. You know, and how do we come to terms with what God is allowing and disallowing? Yeah, I think we're seeing this uh, continual decline of Israel after the death of, of Joshua. Not that things were perfect under Joshua, but, but it was pretty good. You know, it was better than what we have now. Um, the imperfections of the leaders that Israel has as they continue to spiral downward. We didn't even talk about the cycle, the judge's cycle that's kind of set forth in that um, second introduction where the people would, things would be fine, then they would drift into sin and God would send someone to judge them and then the people would cry out to God. God would send a savior, the savior would deliver them. Oh yeah, And did then we... they would fall into complacency once again. I can't remember if we mentioned uh, when they cried out. Or is that before we, no, we started recording? Yeah. Okay. When they cried out, there's no sense of repentance. Mm. Yeah. It's just a sense of, I need, I need something. Yeah. You know, I need, I need my fix. I need to get out of this bind, you know? Uh, but they just never change their way. There's no sense of repentance at all. Yeah. And uh, the cycle of judges, yeah, they get saved, but, you know, at that roller coaster up and down cycle, it goes down further than it goes up. Mm-hmm. So by the time we get to the end of Judges, it's like, can it get worse? And then you read the ending and it's like, oh, it can. Oh, they've been there that whole time. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. So well, I'm looking forward to yeah. <laughs> going further. Yep. So thanks for listening. And uh, we'll have part two for you guys next week. On uh, We'll look at the rest of the chapters, starting with the birth of Samson. <laughs> yes. Uh, Samson. Yeah, we'll get to it. All right. So thanks for listening. Um, if you have any comments, questions, and or <clears throat> concerns, uh, you can email us at contact at onefear.net or visit our website at onefear.net. And Ben's your info? Thinkhardthinkwell.com. And thank you for listening. And per the usual, live such good lives. <laughs>